We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. And then um, we pray for, for North Church as they launch tonight, as they have their first gathering tonight. Father, I thank you for Pastor Dan and, and his team. I pray that you would um, anoint his preaching and their worship and their gathering and that you would um, bring people to know you through North Church. A new church in our city is not competition. It is partners for the sake of the gospel. Thank you for sending them. And then we also pray for Orion, for King's Cross and Independence. Would you bless them? Would you encourage them? Would you strengthen them as they share the gospel in another part of our city? Father, may they see um, a, a harvest of salvation. So may they see men and women discipled and sent out from their church as well. We thank you for the partnership we have with them through Acts 29. Again, we need to hear from you. Speak to us. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Acts chapter 15, or excuse me, Acts chapter 16. Chapter 16, we're going to conclude this week, the end of last week's story. We didn't have time to get to it in last week's sermon. We're going to see the end of the narrative that we were in last week and then move on in the journey of, of Paul and Silas and Timothy as they're going and they're declaring the gospel to different cities. And we've been journeying through the book of Acts this year. We'll conclude just before Advent. And throughout this whole time, we've been talking about this community on mission, this, this church, this movement, this family, the followers of Christ as they move together for the sake of declaring and displaying the gospel to the world who does not know Christ. Now, if you remember last week, we looked at the, the, the story just previous to this where Paul comes into Philippi. And they begin to proclaim the gospel, and they preach the gospel to a lady named Lydia, a very wealthy business lady, a well-put-together lady, a lady who loved God, but she didn't know Jesus. And they preach the gospel, and she hears about Jesus, and she becomes a believer. And then there's the demon-possessed slave girl who is um, freed and redeemed by Jesus. And then there's the jailer who's guarding P, uh, Paul and Timothy and Silas in prison. And God sends an earthquake and shakes the prison and their shackles fall off their hands and the guard's about to kill himself because he thinks they've all escaped. And P, Paul cries out, we're, we're here, don't kill yourself. And the jailer says, how can I be saved? And they tell him about Jesus and the jailer and his whole family come to faith in Jesus. And then he takes Paul and Timothy and Silas into his house he mends their wounds and he feeds them food and together they rejoice in the salvation of Jesus. And that's where we left off last week. But these men are still prisoners. They're, they're, they're still like fugitives, if you will. They're not in the prison anymore. They're now in the guard's house being taken care of. Someone's going to come look for them. That's where the story picks up. Chapter 16, verse 35. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police, saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens, and they have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison 
and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. There's a reason, for some reason, the magistrates, the city rulers, now want to release Paul and Timothy and Silas. The text doesn't tell us why. Perhaps it's their, their, their understanding of, of, of gods, that, that perhaps this earthquake and this freeing of them, maybe there is a powerful God on their side, but for whatever reason, they decide we've got to let these guys get out of here, and they send word through a policeman to let them leave in secret. Please just go and don't make any scene for us, right? Like, like we beat you, we imprisoned you, just, just go, get out of here. And you would think that Paul would be eager to take the opportunity I spent one day in a jail cell in Senegal, at the border of Senegal and Gambia one time when I was like 19 years old because of a passport situation. And I was in there for about six hours and I remember the day that a soldier said, open the door and said, hey, you can come out. I wasn't waiting around going, no, you owe me something. <laughs> right, no, we're gonna, we're gonna talk about this because what you did was wrong putting me in here. But that's what Paul does. Paul goes, you wanna let me out secretly? I don't think so. We're gonna stay until you come and do it publicly. You want to send a policeman to let me out? No, you come and let me out. Which doesn't really feel like Paul, does it? I mean, he's not the guy who really goes around defending his rights. In his commentary, Peterson talks about this, and he kind of gives us a few reasons, a few that I want to point out of why this might be taking place. Perhaps Paul is wanting to defend the name of the gospel. The message he had proclaimed had been defamed publicly, openly by these magistrates. And he's going, you've defamed this publicly, now I want you to vindicate it publicly. The message we proclaimed is not against the law. Come and publicly let us out. Perhaps he's trying to protect the church. Right? If you remember the story last week, they got put in prison because a mob rose up against them. Right? The, the people of the city rioted and a mob rose up and imprisoned them, turned them over to Rome. And perhaps he's going, listen, it is not okay that Christians just get to be mobbed by the masses and thrown in prison. But if you let us out publicly, no one will know that. Or privately, no one will know that. So you come let us out publicly. Let everyone know what happened was not right. Especially since we're Roman citizens, which terrified the magistrates. Right, because it turns out not only was Paul innocent, but the magistrates were guilty. Right, they broke the law by not putting them on trial and by throwing them in prison and beating them unjustly. Or perhaps Paul is bringing forth this thing that we're going to see him write about in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. This idea of Christ's humility and exaltation. Perhaps this whole practice is an illustration if you will, a living out of the humility and exaltation of Christ. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, Paul writes this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, and being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God and the Father. 
perhaps, as Paul says, have this mind among yourselves. He's living this out. He's been humbled. He's been humiliated. He was a religious leader, a bright scholar, a powerful man among the Jews. And now because of Jesus, it has cost him all of that. And he finds himself sitting in a dungeon at night awaiting death. He goes, I have been humiliated. Now the exaltation of my vindication. Come let me out publicly. So they come. And they let him out, and he goes to Lydia's house, where he began in Philippi. They say their goodbyes, their gospel goodbyes, get some food, use the restroom, and go on their journey, right? And go on their journey. Pay attention to Philippians 2, when he said, every knee shall bow, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord, that will come back to us. They go forward, they go on their journey, and the next snapshot that we get from Luke is them showing up in Thessalonica. Let's look at chapter 17, verses one through nine. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And when Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob set in the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money and security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. In Thessalonica, we see the gospel go forth. And, and, and notice Paul's custom, his, his practice. He shows up and he goes into the synagogue and he sits down and he opens the scriptures and he reasons with them. Right, a few weeks ago, we looked at Paul when, when there's the false teacher, Bar-Jesus, Bar- who comes and opposes the gospel. And Paul gets aggressive with him. Paul goes, your, your name's not Bar-Jesus. Your name's not son of Jesus. Your name is son of the devil. Right, you're wicked, you're evil, you're twisted. And he's aggressive. But Paul's custom, like the practice he normally does, is not that type of boldness, but a different type of boldness to sit and to calmly and reasonably go through scripture and go, let me show you who Jesus is. And so he sits and he reasons with them for three Sabbaths, for three weeks, opening up the scriptures and talking about why the Christ must suffer, looking at the prophets and the prophecies. This is how the Christ, the Messiah of God, the Savior must suffer. And this is how Jesus suffered. Do you see the connection? Jesus is this Messiah. And as he reasons with them, it says a few of the Jews believe, many of the Greeks believe, and not a small number of the leading women believe, right? And even more of them believe. Things seem to be going good until 
opposition comes. And if you remember, we've been seeing opposition all through the book of Acts. And last week we said, wherever a community goes on mission, opposition meets it there. And so here, as the gospel's going forth, opposition meets them. And it meets them in the form, first, of jealous Jews. Jealous Jews. Particularly Jewish leaders and devout Jews who have lived their whole lives pursuing the law who've lived their whole lives in pursuit of God and righteousness by being good enough, by keeping the law of Moses well enough. And all of a sudden, what they see transpire is a man stand and reason with them that the Messiah they've always waited for has actually already come, has died, has risen again, and is now back in heaven. And that that Messiah brought a message that all are welcome to his table through faith in him. And it's rattling everything in their paradigm. Because they see here many Greeks and not a few of the leading women coming to faith. And in their world, in their worldview, what they've lived with their whole life and their fathers have lived with and their grandfathers have lived with for generations were that God's people were set aside to to be pleasing to God by obeying the law. There is a way to do this. And Paul comes in and goes, Actually, the way to be pleasing to God is simply to trust Jesus. And they become jealous. And they become jealous, it says. Understand that that human jealousy is often rooted in fear. It's often rooted in fear. I say human jealousy because God is jealous, right? And his jealousy is not rooted in fear. His, His is holiness, Right? His is rooted in honor for his name. His is rooted in pure goodness. He's not tainted by sin or the fall, but we are. And so even our good jealousy is mixed with fear because of the fall. If my wife, I found, was, was talking to another man in a way she should only talk with me, her husband, there would be a righteous jealousy for that, right? Like there would be goodness and a jealousy for that but I cannot separate the goodness of my jealousy also from the fear that would be in my heart for that. Terrified of what that would mean, what is coming, what has happened, where's she going? I can't help but believe that in this jealousy they have, it's rooted in this fear that their whole way of life is being completely turned upside down by this message of the gospel. You even see this because they say they're turning the world upside down. Everything we believed is this. So those are the Jews. Everything that they believed has been turned upside down. The the phrase could also mean resurrected, which gives it a beautiful gospel feel, doesn't it? That their views on the world have been resurrected. They're like, we've been working to keep the law our whole lives, and now the Gentiles get to come in? And just because they have faith in Jesus, they get God? They don't even have to be circumcised? They don't even have to keep the law? What have I been doing this for? Right? They hear this message of the gospel, a message that says that women are counted as equals to men, that slaves are counted as equals to citizens, that tax collectors are welcome, that lepers are touched, that sinners are invited over for dinner. And it's messed up their whole world, turned it upside down. Fear and jealousy rise up, and they start a riot. 
these Jewish leaders go out into the streets and they find the rabble. People who could easily be stirred up to violence, stirred up to division. Those who want to cause trouble can always find people to cause trouble with them. It's not the mature, it's not the healthy, it's not the spiritual, it's the rabble. And they find them and they stir up trouble and they start this riot and they bring them before them and look at their accusation. In chapter 17, verse 6, and when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people of the, and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. So they go to Jason's house, where J- Jason just shows up on the scene for us. He's apparently been the host of Paul and his team. And they show up and they can't find Paul, they can't find Timothy, they can't find Silas. So they drag Jason out of the house into the streets with the mob. And they go, he's to blame too, he's been hosting them. And they've turned this whole world upside down and they are claiming there's a new king. Who's not Caesar, but is Jesus. See, Thessalonica was a large city. It was a powerful city. It was an influential city, but most importantly, it was a free city. And being a free city in Rome meant no taxes and no soldiers in your city. When it comes to being a city of Rome, they have it as good as it gets. All the benefit of Rome and none of the curses of Rome. No taxes, we would all cheer for that one. And and no soldiers in our streets. So why is the, what's the importance of saying they're proclaiming a new king, King Jesus? See, what we actually find here is the fear of the Greeks and their way of losing their way of life. Because what happens if someone starts declaring there's a new king on the scene? Taxes come back. Soldiers enter the city. Caesar comes down with a force. Caesar's not letting a new king rise up in Thessalonica. And all of a sudden, their security, their safety, their entire way of life is threatened by the message of the gospel of King Jesus. It truly is turning their whole world upside down. So they make Jason pay a large sum of money and they send him home. Just so when word gets back to Caesar, because word always gets back to Caesar, they can go, yes, that was happening. We quenched it. We stopped it. We, we taxed him. Don't tax us. Chapter 17, verse 10. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea, also they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. 
And those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens. And after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Paul and Silas are sent away for their safety. They're sent away to Berea. And they come to Berea, and again, as was his custom, he enters the synagogue, and he begins to reason with them from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. Trust in Jesus. And it says that as he's doing this, they took the message seriously. They considered it deeply, and they tested it daily. They they heard what he was saying and they went, we have to see if this is true because if it is, it changes everything. And they began to test the word daily to see in the scriptures, is this message of Christ as the Messiah true? And the text tells us that the people of Berea were more noble than the people of Thessalonica. Thessalonica was the important city, the powerful city, the city on the road um, that mattered, the city of people who had um, a social status. Berea was not. In their culture and in their society, the Thessalonians were high and the Bereans were low. Yet scripture says it's the Bereans who are more noble. Isn't that what the gospel does? The gospel takes things and it turns them upside down. Life is death and death is life. Last is first. And first is last, least is most, and most is least. It changes our whole paradigm. It turns it all upside down. But wherever the community of God goes on mission, opposition meets them there. And in Berea, the opposition actually came from Thessalonica. The Thessalonians who were mad about the gospel turning their city upside down hear that the gospel is being shared in Berea and they come with force to stop it. It's only 45 miles, which doesn't seem like, hey, that's not that big of a deal with our cars, but remember, they're walking. They care enough about stopping Paul's mission, opposing the message that they walk 45 miles to cause trouble for him. And they show up, and they start raising a riot in Berea, making the same claims, and the same thing continues on. The mob forms, and the new believers usher Paul out quickly. They're not going to let this escalate again. Timothy and Silas stay there and wait for him to send for them. So what do we do with this? Let's try to make some sense of this. Because as we read these stories, there's actually nothing that tells us to do something, right? We have no direct imperatives here, like do this. We don't know what to do within this text, but we need to see what the text is telling us to understand what it's saying about God and us. On one hand, the application is very straightforward. When you proclaim the gospel, there will be some who believe and there will be some who oppose. Expect that. Don't be thrown off by the opposition. Don't be thrown off if the opposition is far greater than the belief. It's part of the process. We share the gospel, people oppose, and some people believe. Keep sharing the gospel. But there's more to it than that. The Jews were jealous because their sense of of community, of identity, of their world was being disrupted by the gospel. 
who was important and how one was made right with God, who got recognized in society, who was welcome at their table. All these things were being turned upside down by this message that God welcomed all through his son, Jesus Christ. Likewise, the mobs were angry and aggressive because their very sense of security and safety was being threatened by this message of Christ, which was a message that there is a different king than Caesar, King Jesus, which was the message that Paul was preaching. It plays into the Philippians 2 when he says, every knee shall bow and tongue confess, Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. The message of this Messiah was a message of, of a rival king. This message of a Messiah who was killed, rose from the dead, and is still living is a message of great threat to Caesar. How do you fight an immortal challenger? The message that all must bow this knee was a message of insurrection. So the Jews are terrified of this lost sense of life that they knew as the community and identity in God. And these Greeks are terrified because of their lost sense of security and safety in Rome. The reaction they have is much like the reaction of this rich young ruler that Jesus met. The man who comes to Jesus, he has much. And he says, how can I have life and Jesus, eternal life? And Jesus says, go sell all that you have and follow me. Jesus was speaking to his heart. What is his security? What is his value? What is his safety? What does he hold and treasure most? Turn that upside down and come follow me. And like that rich young ruler who walked away and did not sell and did not receive Jesus, these Jews and these Greeks are opposing the gospel out of their fear of losing what they value most. In so many ways, what they thought about this gospel message was true. The gospel absolutely turns the world upside down. The gospel disrupts everything. It disrupts our comforts and our paradigms. It disrupts our false senses of, of, of righteousness and justice. It disrupts what we believe about ourselves and what we believe about others. The gospel welcomes people that we hate. And it, it condemns people that we love. The gospel exposes our idols and it reveals our lies. It roots up our false securities. It truly turns the world upside down. It is offensive in every way. That was true. And in so many ways, what they thought about this gospel message was also false. See, the Jews thought that Jesus was changing the whole system. Here comes this message of Jesus changing everything about our way of life, changing everything that we know about God. Here comes this new belief, this new system. It's messing it all up. But what they didn't see is that from the very beginning, all of Scripture is actually pointing to Jesus. He wasn't the new kid on the scene changing everything. He was the original creator of the scene who spoke all things into being and gave the law and gave the Scriptures to bring his people back to him. This whole thing was about him from the very beginning. And from the very beginning, his plan, God's plan, was not for his people to become an elite club with exclusion. An elite club with exclusion of, uh, with exclusive rights on God's righteousness. Rather, they were to become a community on mission who took the good news of Jesus to all sinners, that God saves sinners who come to him in faith. The true community of God was always intended to be a place that was made up of Jews and Gentiles, 
men and women, young and old, rich and poor, slave and citizen. It was meant to be that way. And so what they thought was actually the flipping of the script was actually the resurrecting of the script. It was the setting straight what was always meant to be. And what the Greeks thought was a challenge to their king was actually a claim to the throne that had always been. In his commentary, Pastor Patrick says this, (laughs) the Greeks thought that Jesus was the challenger, but actually Caesar was. The throne was always Jesus's. In fact, Jesus is the one who gave Caesar his temporary throne. King Jesus was always sitting, waiting, ruling the world, and he's simply come to announce, I'm here. And so their proclamation of every knee shall bow and every tongue confess, come to King Jesus, repent, be saved, their proclamation is actually not new news. It's actually not a twisting of things. It's actually not even insurrection towards the king. It's actually towards Caesar. It's actually announcement that the king is still on his throne. Caesar hasn't changed that. And ironically, what the Greeks feared so much was that this idea of this new king would upend all of their life, would change all of their, the blessings that they had from Rome, would mess up all of their security and all of their safety, that it would be a rival, and they wanted to remove Caesar from his throne. But, but what Jesus was actually calling them to do was to be citizens of the kingdom within the kingdom. They lived in Rome. Be citizens of God's kingdom within the kingdom of Rome. Live as Christ called his followers to live within the place of Rome, to love their neighbor as themselves, to do to others as they would have them do unto them, to turn the other cheek, to carry one another's burdens, to forgive 70 times seven, to care for the poor and the widow and the child and the woman and the slave and the sinner. What they missed is that the actual best kingdom to live in is a kingdom full of God's citizens of followers of Christ, because they should be the most generous, gracious, loving, peaceable people on the planet. And so this movement of gospel would actually transform the kingdom of Rome for the good. But their fear causes them to push it back. Their idols cause them to reject it. So what do we take from this? If you're an unbeliever, And my plea with you today is that your knees would bow and your tongue would confess that Jesus is Lord. He is the king. He always has been and he always will be. And one day every knee will confess or every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But hear me on this. If you're an unbeliever, hear this. Salvation for your soul, eternal life for you, your eternal joy And life depends upon that knee bowing and that tongue confessing in this life. One day you will, but if it doesn't happen before you take your last breath, it's too late for the salvation to come from it. Pleading with you, Jesus is your king, whether you realize it or not. Come to him. Submit to him. God so loved the world that he sent his son to you. To die for you. He he left his throne. We sang sang about this. He left his throne. He was born in a manger. 
right, a feeding trough. He grew up and never sinned against God, lived perfectly, and then sacrificed himself on the cross on your behalf, on my behalf, on the behalf of all would have faith in him. He gave his life as a substitute for ours, and then he rose from the dead, and he sits on the throne today. I believe in that, have faith, and be saved today. And then for the believers in the room, Last week, we rolled out for you that we hope these texts would bring out within us um, thankfulness and hopefulness and boldfulness. Remember, we made up that word. We hope they would spur in our hearts to be thankful, to be hopeful, and to be bold. Thankful for the salvation we have. Thankful that Jesus always has and always will sit on the throne. Hopeful that even in the midst of opposition, people are coming to faith in Christ. The gospel is going forth and bold with this gospel, bold with this gospel message. Perhaps you're like, I have been far too much. And my apprehension to boldness in declaring the gospel to people is actually fear of turning people's lives upside down. It's actually fear of messing with people's paradigms. Fear of coming in and being like, everything you've thought is totally wrong. Let me help you start completely over in life. Fear, if you will, of, of, of changing their frameworks and removing their securities and their comforts. Fear of being considered an insurrectionist, if you will, in their lives. Which really comes down to a fear of my own peace. If I rattle their lives, what's that going to do back to my life? And one of the things that has helped in this is remembering that the message of Christ that I have to deliver for them is not the new message. It's not actually the message coming in and making everything wrong. It's actually the resurrection of the truth that's always been. I can't help if they receive it, like the Thessalonians, as turning the world upside down. But I hope they'll receive it like the Bereans of resurrecting the truth that they would come to faith in Christ. So I proclaim it with gentleness and goodness and peacefulness, pleading. And I do it with the assurance that I am an ambassador of the king. I'm not leading an insurrection. I'm coming forward for the king who has always been. The king whom we represent. We bring good news and glad tidings that the Savior was born and the king lives. That's what we proclaim when we proclaim Jesus. So church, let's go. Proclaim him. Let me pray for us. Jesus, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you are on your throne. You always have been. You've never taken a day off. So, pray that you would root your word within our hearts today, that you would save those who have had no faith, and that you would spur forward those who have had faith in you, that you would cause us to be a community on mission, boldly proclaiming that the king lives. 
for the glory of God and the joy of those we share with. The king lives. Come to Jesus and be saved. We thank you for your word again. Amen. Every week we conclude our time in the word with communion. We do this um, for, for various reasons, but today as we do this, we come to this table as an actual declaration that the king lives. His body was broken, his blood was shed, but praise be to God, the king rose from the dead. And through faith, we're invited to his table, Jew and Greek, slave and citizen, man and woman, rich and poor, educated, uneducated, we're invited to his table. No matter what our sins were in the past, through faith, we get to come to the king's table and eat because of what Christ did. And so we invite you to come. If you've placed your faith in Jesus, then we ask you to come. If you happen to have never placed your faith in Jesus, then our invitation to you today is to be honest with yourself about that and stay in your seat. We're so glad that you're here. You're welcome to come back week after week after week as we reason from the scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah. But this is just juice and bread to you. Don't fool yourself by coming and taking juice and bread that actually has no spiritual purpose for you who have no faith in Jesus. Rather, watch us proclaim we believe the King's alive. And then we'd love for you to come talk with us after the service about this living King, Jesus. Thank you for listening to audio from Amaze KC, located in Kansas City. For more information about Amaze KC, please visit us online at www.amazekc.com.